Hello everybody and welcome back to Evaluating Modern Theology as we go over Paul Tillich's Systematic Theology. Now, last week we finally finished his introduction. It took us nine separate recordings plus two bonuses to look at the general thesis that he kind of says, but isn't willing to say out loud, that man is the measure of all things, and his theology is thoroughly humanistic. And so philosophers and theologians have different jobs because of that. The philosopher attempts to find the truth using his brain, while the theologian tries to kiss existential boo-boos and make bad feelings go away, according to the quote-unquote situation, and who determines the situation? Mankind. But anyway, after nine separate recordings, we finally get to Paul Tillich's actual systematic theology. We've talked about his methods, we've talked about his central theses, we've talked about all this stuff, and now we get to finally hear him say something. Let's get into his first part here. Epistemology, the knowledge of knowing, is a part of ontology, the knowledge of being. For knowing is an event within the totality of events. Ha ha, tricked you. That's right, his systematic theology is starting and he starts with philosophy. He gotcha, he trolled you. He said that philosophers and theologians have different jobs and different approaches. <laughs> no, not really. If Tillich was being serious and honest, he would admit that according to his worldview, there is no difference between a philosopher and a theologian, except maybe the theologian says Jesus sometimes. So having moved past the introduction, how does Paul... Tillich start his real theology with philosophy, and not only starting with philosophy, but spiking the football at what he perceives to be philosophy, more or less defeating theologians. Recent Neo-Kantian philosophers recognized the dependence of epistemology on ontology and contributed to the fall of the epistemological tidal wave, which arose in the second half of the 19th century. Classical theology always has been aware that a doctrine of revelation presupposes doctrines of God, man, Christ, etc., it has known that the epistemological preamble is dependent on the whole of the theological system. Recent attempts to make epistemological and methodological considerations an independent basis for theological work have been futile. Therefore, it is necessary that the systematic theologian, when he begins with the epistemological part, the doctrine of reason and revelation, should indicate clearly the anticipations he makes, both with respect to reason and with respect to revelation. What is he getting at? He is saying 
that so long as theologians attempted to grapple with epistemology, the philosophy of knowing things, how we know things, how we know that we know things, how we know that we know that we know things, and so on and so forth, he claimed that it was basically circular reasoning because they assume that God exists, that the Christian faith is true, and therefore epistemology argues for that. My question is, is that really how it happened? Maybe there were some theologians that argued in this fashion, always assuming the truth of the Christian faith and developing an epistemology from there, which is then pointed to the truth of the Christian faith. But did it really start that way? If you look at the pre-Socratic philosophers like Heraclitus, there was a real serious problem in epistemology. Heraclitus tried to solve that puzzle with a doctrine of what is called logos, or the word, the unifying thing that takes is and changing, unchanging reality and changing reality, and binds it in such fashion that when I say I'm looking at a river, even though the waters are moving, it is the same river. Heraclitus came up with a primitive version of the Logos doctrine about five, six hundred years before St. John wrote his gospel, which points to Christ as the Logos. And before St. Paul wrote Colossians, which says that in Christ the entirety of the universe holds together. Therefore, Christian theologians have always had access to epistemological positions which precede the entirety of the Christian faith. Now, the fact of the matter is, Christian revelation does agree with a philosophical concept of logos. And yes, it's perfectly legit to just assume the truth of the Christian faith while developing an epistemological doctrine that jives with the concept of logos. So no, Paul Tillich spiking the football and saying that theologians just failed in their philosophical duties and in their approach to quote-unquote reason is just ignorance on his part. Or maybe it's not. Let's see if he brings up the concept of the Logos. According to the classical philosophical tradition, reason is the structure of the mind which enables the mind to grasp and to transform reality. It is effective in the cognitive, aesthetic, practical, and technical functions of the human mind. Okay. I don't see much of a problem there saying that is what reason is, although there's probably a lot more to it than that. But let's keep going. We're going to skip over him mentioning Plato and Eros. Lord knows Tillich knew a few things about Eros. In the apathy of the soul, the Logos manifests its presence, say the Stoics. The longing for its origin elevates soul and mind toward the ineffable source of all meaning, per Plotinus. The appetitus of everything finite drives it toward the good itself, from Aquinas. 
Intellectual love unites intellect and emotion in the most rational state of the mind, per Spinoza. Philosophy is service of God. It is a thinking which is at the same time life and joy in the absolute truth, per Hegel, etc. Classical reason is capital L Logos, whether it is understood in a more intuitive or in a more critical way. Its cognitive nature is one element in addition to others. It is cognitive and aesthetic, theoretical and practical, detached and passionate, subjective and objective. The denial of reason in the classical sense is anti-human because it is anti-divine. Now that all sounds, and pun intended, very reasonable. If you reject all reason in and of itself, you are going against God who put that reason in you. However, Mr. Tillich is using this as a basis for inserting our reason into everything, making mankind the measure of all things, which is the central thesis that he refuses to say out loud. Well... Let's see if he continues on. He distinguishes between some different types of reasons, uh, four of them in specific. And then he says this. The theologian is not obligated to make a decision about the degree of truth of these four types of reason. However, he must consider their common presuppositions when he uses the concept of reason. Implicitly, theologians have always done this. They have spoken of creation through the Logos or of the spiritual presence of God in everything real. They have called man the image of God because of his rational structure and have charged him with the task of grasping and shaping the world. Ah, so the theologian, using his reason, as Mr. Tillich said, starts his theology with reason and continues it with reason. And he has to distinguish between types of reason so that he can use his reason in doing his theology better. Ah, uh, yes, that's right, because... Lutheran theologians have always just relied on their reason, right? I'm sure that Mr. Luther had nothing to say about reason as the basis for theology, but I digress. Mr. Tillich believes that reason is worthless if it does not actually shape the world around us, if there is no practicum aspect of our reason and our logic. Let's read a very interesting paragraph here, very revealing. The division between the grasping and the shaping character of reason is not exclusive. In every act of reasonable reception, an act of shaping is involved. And in every act of reasonable reaction, an act of grasping is involved. We transform reality according to the way we see it, and we see reality according to the way we transform it. Grasping and shaping the world are interdependent. 
In the cognitive realm, this has been clearly expressed in the fourth gospel, which speaks of knowing the truth by doing the truth. By the way, that is not what St. John says. He has a footnote here saying that John 3.21 demonstrates this, and it is not the case. Let's get into that. John 3.21 says, Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Meaning, if you do the truth, living according to God's word, and especially the words of our Lord Christ, then your good works, your life, are brought to the light so that people can see that your works are done in the name of God or carried out in God. Now, where does St. John talk about the light? Well, he says in John chapter 1, concerning the Logos, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When you do the truth, that is, living in the truth, serving God, holding to the truth, and studying the truth, you come eventually to Christ. You are acting in Christ. You are acting in God. Jesus is not saying you come to the truth by quote-unquote doing the truth, except in the sense that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No, he is not about to say, and our Lord Christ never says, what Mr. Tillich is about to say about this verse. Only in the act of realization of the true does truth become manifest. In a similar way, Karl Marx called every theory which is not based on the will to transform reality an ideology. That is, an attempt to preserve existing evils by a theoretical construction which justifies them. Let's spend the rest of this recording unpacking that. Because I'm sure nobody going into their systematic theology course thought that they were going to hear a theologian talk about getting his theology from Karl Flippin' Marx! And I'm sure none of these seminarians in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s up to the present day would be reading from Paul Tillich expecting him to say that your reason shapes reality. And the reason we know this is because Karl Marx said so. Your thoughts, your ideas, your ideologies, they're worthless because they don't actually shape reality. Don't you know that mankind by his reason can shape all of reality? Hmm. Now we understand why Mr. Tillich keeps talking about mankind as the measure of all things. We need to address mankind's situation. We need to address mankind's thoughts, mankind's developments. Man is the measure of all things and the center of everything because mankind is his God and he has just demonstrated the belief that mankind is more or less omnipotent. Because if by your reason you shape reality, then yes, that makes you God.
And I'm sure that Mr. Tillich might reply, oh, well, it's only a certain type of reason that kind of does this. But nobody got that memo. Modern churches, liberal churches, people holding to modern and postmodern theology are utilizing this state of mind. They are taking this cue from Mr. Tillich to do whatever the hell they want with the Bible, with theology, with the Christian faith. Do you want to know why there are TikTok pastors and quote-unquote pastrixes claiming that God is trans? It is because Mr. Tillich gave them permission first. And do not claim that I am taking him out of context. Oh no, he continues and answers an objection. I don't even need to do the silly voice for this. He says, one must ask what the dynamic element in objective reason means. It is a problem whether one can speak about a changing element within the structure of reality. Nobody doubts that reality changes, but many people believe that change is possible only because the structure of reality is unchangeable. If this were so, the rational structure of the mind itself would be unchangeable, and the rational process would have only two elements, the static element and the failure to grasp and to shape it adequately. One would have to dismiss the dynamic element of reason altogether if subjective reason alone were dynamic. Reality itself creates structural possibilities within itself. Life as well as mind is creative. Only those things can live which embody a rational structure. Living beings are successful attempts of nature to actualize itself in accordance with the demands of objective reason. If nature does not follow these demands, its products are unsuccessful trials. The same is true of legal forms and social relations. New products of the historical process are attempts which can succeed only if they follow the demands of objective reason. Neither nature nor history can create anything that contradicts reason. The new and the old in history and nature are bound together in an overwhelming rational unity which is static and dynamic at the same time. The new does not break this unity. It cannot because objective reason is the structural possibility, the logos of being. You see, the nature of reality itself, as he claims, Mr. Tillich, is that you might not be able to change something, but that's not because reality is unchanging. After all, if that were the case, then you could never change yourself. And so, therefore, reality changes, right? And uh, it's our mind that apprehends and changes all of reality. Of course, I mean, <laughs> duh. And, you know, if nature doesn't follow this kind of thing, then that's nature just screwing up. Because it's really all got to be about the mind. And whose mind? The human mind. <laughs> I laugh because this means that Paul Tillich's quote-unquote rational theology is almost no different from Mary Baker Eddy's Christian science. You know, the cult, where they claimed that everything was spiritual and death don't real, everything is just mind. She claimed that she wasn't really gonna die, so she said, ah, but when I look like I'm dying, go ahead and bury me. We'll put a phone or something in my grave. A phone or a bell, whichever one, which, by the way, has not rung ever since she died. 
Mr. Tillich would not admit this because that would mean that every Christian body that follows his teachings is really a cult. It's a cult that follows his teachings, which seem very, very blatantly to be following the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy. What an own to claim that reason is the foundation of reality. My goodness, and somebody being cheeky might claim, oh, reason is the foundation of reality. It's God's reason. Uh, sure, I guess. God thought it, and then the universe came into being after he pronounced, let there be light. However, comma, Mr. Tillich and all of his followers worship mankind as the omnipotent deity to whom God must answer. Uh, so, it's not the same. It really isn't. Every church and every pastor, every body that follows this man is in a cult. And it's a big cult. It's a dying cult. But it's a cult nonetheless. And I hate that people look at what the cult says and they go, ah, oh, yeah, that's Christianity. Dang. All right, catch y'all next week for, uh, for more fun times with Mr. Tillich. Amen and amen.